Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about caretaking the brain and minding the odyssey of memory loss. My first guest is Dr. Dan Gibbs. Dan Gibbs is a retired neurologist in Portland, Oregon, with early stage Alzheimer's disease. Having spent 25 years caring for patients, many with dementia themselves, he is now an active advocate for the early recognition and management of Alzheimer's. And he's written a book called A Tattoo on My Brain, A Neurologist's Personal Battle Against Alzheimer's Disease. Dan, thanks for joining me on the show. I have been eager to speak with you all week, and I'm really glad to have you here. Oh, my my pleasure. I'm glad to be here. Well, let's just go to the beginning of this, because you, you, you say that tattoo is a compelling personal narrative, which I happen to agree about the urgent public health crisis of Alzheimer's disease. You are a respected neurologist with early stage Alzheimer's yourself. Can you outline some of the the actionable steps that others can take to help prevent and tr- manage and treat the disease? Yeah, I'd, I'd be glad to. Of course, one thing I feel strongly about is that we should look at Alzheimer's disease as early as possible and try to recognize risk for it because the actual changes in our brain, the formation of the amyloid plaques and later the tau-containing neurofibrillary um, tangles, the, the hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease, actually begin years, if not decades, before we get any cognitive impairment. And by the time we get cognitive impairment and and someone could make a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease, there already has been the death of a lot of nerve cells. And in a way, the horses are out of the barn. And my personal quest is to try to shift the, the conversation back to how can we help in the time before there is even any cognitive impairment. And, you know, how can you do that? Well, obviously, People who might be more interested in following this would be people with a family history of Alzheimer's disease. People who have a parent or even more so if both parents have Alzheimer's disease, then that increases their risk of of getting it as well. If you happen to know that you have the ApoE4 gene, then that will increase your risk some. If you have two copies of it, it'll increase your risk a lot. Um, So people in those categories, I would certainly urge to start as early as possible some of the kind of common sense modifications of lifestyle that really have a science-backed validity to them in prolonging the onset of cognitive impairment, or in some cases, preventing the disease altogether. But if you wait until you're 
in late stages, or if the medical professional waits until you are in late stages, then there may not be much to do to alter the course of the disease. Just treating the symptoms is all that will be available. So let me just ask you about the genetic marker, the genetic testing that is available for Alzheimer's, because you said it so quickly, I didn't, I didn't quite catch the, the uh, initials. Right. Well, you know, there are many, many genes, you know, the new ones discovered almost every week, it seems, uh, that, that increase the risk of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, but they're relatively rare. And, and, and they don't, if you have one of those, it doesn't mean that you're going to get it by any means. There are three genes um, that uh, if you have one of those, just one copy, you're going to get Alzheimer's no matter what, and you tend to get it very early uh, in the 30s or 40s or 50s. Um, but those are rare uh, and only account for uh, maybe 2% of people with Alzheimer's disease. They are determinants. I mean, you they're not risk factors. You'll get Alzheimer's disease if you have one of those. But the gene I'm going to talk about now is the most prominent risk factor genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's, and that's the APOE gene, and it comes in three forms. There's APOE2, APOE3, and APOE4, and I've never found anyone who could tell me why there's no APOE1. I, <laughs> I don't know what that's about, but uh, APOE3 is the most common. Oh, gosh, I'm going to forget my numbers now. It's the most common uh, form of it out there, and that has uh, a, a neutral risk. Uh, the APOE4, uh, as I mentioned before, that if you have that, it doesn't mean you're going to have Alzheimer's disease, but it just increases the risk by maybe twofold. Uh, if you have two copies of the APOE4, you know, we have two copies of each chromosome, two uh, strands of DNA. And if the, this particular uh, allele or mutation is on uh, both of your strands of, of DNA, then your risk goes up substantially. Um, and if you live long enough, you'll probably almost certainly get Alzheimer's if you have that combination. And that's what I have. How old uh, were you when you uh, found out that you had Alzheimer's? Well, it's a, I started to say it's a long story. It's a prolonged story uh, because in retrospect, knowing what I know now, probably the first symptom of, of Alzheimer's I had was when in about 2006, uh, so 15 years ago, I started to lose my sense of smell. And I didn't think much of it because I just thought it was because I was getting older, but I had a little more trouble than my wife did in, in smelling, you know, certain things. I could still smell, but it just, it wasn't as acute. I didn't think much about it. Uh, then about a year later, I started to have these uh, bizarre, uh, illusory odors, uh, they're called phantosmias, that would come out of nowhere. There'd be no olfactory stimulus. They would just occur and they would last a few minutes or maybe an hour and they were always the same uh it was the smell of of baking bread mixed with perfume if you can imagine that so you know a kind of a delightful smell over the years they they changed in quality just a little bit and, and took on a little bit more of a citrus uh hue I, I like to think of mixing some lemon pledge into the the baking bread <laughs> but that, that that doesn't sound as appealing as the smell really was I still wasn't particularly concerned. I just thought that was kind of an odd thing. I actually had, you know, some thoughts that maybe my olfactory things meant that I would later just come down with uh, Parkinson's disease because about 80% of people with Parkinson's disease develop olfactory uh, problems. Uh, and uh, these phantosmias have been reported in, in uh, 
Parkinson's disease. Uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but it, it, the, there is a very strong literature about uh, loss of olfaction in part in um, Alzheimer's as well. I just wasn't aware of it at the time. Uh, virtually all patients with Alzheimer's, when their uh, smell is tested, have some degree of impairment, but most aren't aware of it. And and I think you know when I was in practice, I certainly wasn't aware of it. And I think the reason is that by the time we saw people with Alzheimer's in the clinic, uh, at least twenty years ago. They tended to be in the more advanced stages of the disease, and uh, they were not that communicative, and and certainly nobody mentioned any trouble smelling, and I didn't know enough to ask. So I think that's that's the difference. Um, I accidentally discovered my APOE4 status, in, I think it was 2012, so sometime later. And at, at that point, I still didn't have any cognitive problems uh, of any concern. And uh, what happened was that, you know, my wife is the family genealogist and, and uh, she wanted to to get our, uh, the, the, both of us to get our DNA tested to fill out some some cracks in the, the genealogical trees. And uh, at that time, uh, this was 23andMe, uh, it, it, it did give a lot of health-related uh, things. I think they're doing that again. There was a period of five years or so where the FDA wouldn't allow them to do it. But um, at that time, there was a, a, a locked box of results that you had to uh, you know, read warnings about before you opened it. And that was for two neurological genes. And one of those genes was uh, a gene for Parkinson's, uh, the LARC2 gene. And uh, that's the most common cause of hereditary Parkinson's. It's still, that only accounts for about 20% of Parkinson's. But uh, I thought, well, you know, maybe I should do open, take a look at that because it, it might explain my my sense of the problems with my sense of smell. But the other gene that was there was the APOE gene. And uh, I was shocked to see that I had two copies of APOE4 because it wasn't on my radar screen at all. Both of my parents died early from cancer. You know, when I later went back and looked in more depth at my family history, there certainly were cases of dementia and probable Alzheimer's disease, but it just wasn't something I'd been thinking about. So it wasn't until I found that I was APOE4 positive, uh, double positive, if you will, uh, that uh, Alzheimer's got on my my uh, uh, radar screen and I started to pay more attention to my cognition. But I still was working and teaching and, and uh, uh, not having any problems uh, at all. Wow, that's quite a journey, actually, you know, from uh, your practitioner to patient. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't really say that I was a patient at that point. Uh, I was just uh, cautious, and and I, I asked a friend of mine who was a dementia specialist to do some kind of off the record uh, cognitive testing, which he did with a uh, uh, a computer program, and uh, it was interesting because in all the the different cognitive domains, but one, I scored uh, oh something like the ninety fifth percentile, so very very. Good. And there was nothing problem, no problem at all. But in one domain, that was verbal memory, I scored in the 50th percentile, which is still normal. But it was uh, distinctly different from my performance in all sorts of other types of, of cognition. And it just raised a, an orange flag, if you will, that, you know, things weren't quite right in the part of my brain, relatively speaking, that processed verbal memory. And of course, verbal memory is one of the first things that gets hit 
in most people with Alzheimer's disease. And when we talk about you know, uh, verbal memory and memory loss, I think that m- most of us question as we age, well, what is normal? You know, we do lose some of our memory as we age, don't we? Isn't that normal? Well, yeah, absolutely. And that's the big, you know, that there was nothing abnormal with the way I was at that point. But I, I started to worry about the, my future as a physician because it, there would be no reason why I even, would even think of retiring at that point if I did anything else. But uh, in medicine, you really can't make any mistakes. And, and I wanted to make sure I retired before any cognitive impairment got to the stage where it interfered with my ability to give good medical care. So about a year later, I, I did retire, um, although I did some volunteer work uh, for a year after that. Uh, and then in, in a couple of years later, I uh, had an extensive evaluation as part of a, a study at uh, University of California, San Francisco, that was investigating um, a then new PET scan tracer to uh, identify tau, the abnormal protein in the neurofibrillary tangles. So as someone who was at, at risk for getting Alzheimer's disease, uh, I was ideal for their study. They would follow me over time and see how things changed in my brain. And so that was interesting because I got uh, a amyloid and tau PET scans, which are still not generally available, you know, except in a research study. Uh, they're both approved, but they're they're not uh, reimbursed by insurance or, or Medicare, so they're not in, in wide use yet. Um, and I had two days of cognitive testing and MRI scanning, a whole week of, of in San Francisco. And at the end of that time, we all got together. Uh, there were about 20 people in the room and to look at the scans. And the first one was the amyloid scan, which uh, showed a moderate amount of amyloid, uh, which is abnormal. That's, it doesn't mean I have Alzheimer's disease, but it certainly increases the chance that I will. But one thing that fascinated me about that scan was that looking at it, I could see that there was uh, amyloid in two areas of the brain that are involved in uh, olfactory processing, the piriform cortex and the uh, orbital frontal cortex. So we all kind of thought that was pretty cool, you know, around the room, because that really hadn't been noticed on PET scans before. Interesting. Uh, So that explained the loss of smell. Well, maybe. I mean, the, it, it had been, it's been known f- since uh, at least 20 years that the pathological changes in the brain, this is autopsy material, uh, in Alzheimer's disease, you know, first appear in uh, olfactory centers, particularly the olfactory bulb um, and others, as well as uh, part of the temporal lobe near the hippocampus. Uh, so olfactory, pathological olfactory changes are very are very well recognized as a very early sign. But I think this is the first time that anyone had really you know, paid attention to it. It's probably been there on PET scans all along, but nobody really, really noticed it. And and I, we couldn't see it in that olfactory bulb, but I think it's because it's so small, there wasn't enough amyloid there to, to pick up. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll continue the conversation with Dr. Daniel Gibbs. We're talking about his book, A Tattoo on My Brain, A Neurologist's Personal Battle Against Alzheimer's Disease, to learn more, please visit TattooOnMyBrain.com. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. 
we're back continuing the conversation about caretaking the brain and minding the odyssey of memory loss. Let's get back to it with Dr. Dan Gibbs. So Dan, in the first segment, you shared a little bit of the journey to the place where you really had the diagnosis of Alzheimer's. And I'd like to understand a little bit more about your incredible enthusiasm and ability to manage the condition through your lifestyle choices and and how you serve as a model for others who may be experiencing something similar. Yeah, well, you know, people have asked me, well, how did you feel when you you saw that amyloid in your brain? And, and actually, there was some tau there as well. You know, didn't that freak you out? And and I said, on the contrary, it actually was was uh, fairly liber- liberating because it actually gave me uh, uh, something to get my teeth into. You know, I knew what I had now, and I could do everything I could to ameliorate the, the the problem, try to slow it down, and try to learn from it. And and you know, I've really approached this uh, in a, a couple of different ways. But I think, frankly, the looking at the science of it for me, and kind of looking at my case as a neurologist has been a, 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 a very useful coping mechanism because it's made it much less scary because I feel a little bit more in control. Yeah. I've volunteered in several other studies. Uh, and and I, I should point, you know, I, I love volunteering in studies and I would encourage people to do it, but I think it's a misconception to think, uh, to, to plan to join a study thinking that's going to be the answer to make you better. You know, that would be great, but the chance of that happening is small. And, and the reason to join a study is really to contribute to the, the body of knowledge that ultimately will lead to a cure. But the chance of you actually benefit, benefiting from it is is small. What I hope for is that my children's generation will not have to face this, but I don't hold up great hope that my course is going to be much different mm. than it would otherwise. Um but the, the the thing that I would like to, and I've become quite passionate about, is trying to move the conversation about Alzheimer's away from the end-stage disease, which is what it was all about when I was first in practice and for the first 15 years or so. That's when we first saw patients, and there, there really wasn't much we could do about them except to support the families. But now it looks like, you know, there may be things, you know, on the horizon that uh, will actually slow the progression uh, of the disease uh, and hopefully maybe even stop it. But all of these things will have to be used, uh, applied early, you know, probably before there are cognitive problems in that 10 or 20 years when the neuropathology is started in the brain, but there hasn't been any cognitive loss yet. By the time there's cognitive loss, uh, that means there are dead nerve cells, and we don't know any way to make those come back. So what we want to do is prevent that spread. And what can we do about it? Well, there are you know, science-backed uh, things that seem to help, and the strongest of these is aerobic exercise. I mean, the, the evidence for that is the strongest. It, it's worked in all the studies, uh, virtually all the studies, except those done in people with uh, advanced Alzheimer's disease. You know, even even the moderate ones don't uh, benefit from exercise, except for Im- improving their sense of well-being. It doesn't slow the progression of the disease. But started early in the disease, um, and particularly in people who are at risk by, by uh, having APOE4 or having parents with Alzheimer's, uh, the earlier they start it, the better. 
And I just work that into my my daily thing. I I walk my dog uh, in the hills of Northwest Portland uh, every day. We get our ten thousand steps uh, at least, uh, and uh, we climb the hills. I usually get about over three hundred feet of elevation, so I can get my heart rate up uh, in the aerobic range. And that's something that is really important. That people at risk should be starting in midlife or earlier. They shouldn't wait until they're in their sixties or seventies. So sorry to you guys who are eighty. It's good good to start it now, but you should have started it forty years ago. Well, uh, let me ask you something about that. That for uh, other dimensions, is there a strong correlation between keeping that aerobic activity and mind and memory? Yeah, so there there is, and you know, it, it's 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 a complicated tangle of of interrelationships. For one thing, what we what we're learning is that uh, it's rare to have one type of dementia pathology. So if you look at the brains of people after they've died who've had Alzheimer's disease or Lewy body dementia or frontotemporal dementia, it's actually relatively rare to have just one type of pathology. It's more common to actually have more than one, sometimes three types of pathology. And the most common overlap is between uh, Alzheimer's and vascular dementia, which are tiny little strokes that uh, over time, uh, lead to cognitive loss. And that should be no surprise because uh, the same sort of things uh, we know already help both of those. Uh, and that's good cardiovascular health, uh, imp- improving the, the fl- blood flow to the brain. And so treating high blood pressure, treating diabetes, uh, keep the blood sugar down, those will help both those types of dementia very well. There's less known about the the risks uh, and things that help frontotemporal dementia, at least that I know of. But there is, there are plenty of cases where people have both frontotemporal lobe pathology, which is totally different than Alzheimer's, in the same brain. So they may look for all the world like they have a frontotemporal dementia, which is different um, from Alzheimer's in that it tends to come out earlier. It tends to be start with uh, antisocial behavior before uh, it, there's much cognitive impairment. Uh, but many of those people actually seem to have Alzheimer's going on at the same time. Let me ask you about um, untreated depression and the relationship between Alzheimer's and some research that was done about um, untreated depression and the shrinking of the hippocampus, which was then associated with Alzheimer's. And this, I read this, this is a few years back, and there may be more on the subject, but there wasn't a lot at the time. Yeah. Well, uh, depression, uh, again, is complicated because depression, uh, severe depression can mimic Alzheimer's uh, because people become withdrawn and uh, their responses are slower and they can be misdiagnosed uh, with Alzheimer's disease. On the other hand, they coexist. Uh, Alzheimer's, people with Alzheimer's almost always have depression uh, to some point. Uh, And and of course, some of that is that we're all bummed out because we've got a bad disease. But it's more than that. There do seem to be biochemical changes uh, in Alzheimer's that make one prone to to depression, to real biochemical depression. And there is this information that you alluded to that uh, depression itself can, uh, in some cases, lead to uh, Alzheimer's. So it's a very complicated intertwining uh, puzzle. And they all need to be treated. You know, most people with uh, Alzheimer's disease will need a treatment of their depression and sometimes vice versa. Yeah. The reason I'm interested in this is I was a, a former partner of mine who shall remain nameless, was diabetic and uh, suffered from depression. 
And um, it started me becoming interested on the literature about poor glucose control contributing to depression and then the depression contributing to the Alzheimer's and the memory loss, you know, or other dementias. Yeah. It's all tied together. It is all tied together. And it really speaks to what you're saying about vascular health. So that is one of the the, the top interventions is the aerobic exercise. Right. What about diet? Yeah. So diet seems to be important too. And and then no surprise. uh, And and the, the sort of diet that seems to be helpful for Alzheimer's prevention is the same uh, diet that's good for your cardiovascular system. So something like the Mediterranean diet. Uh, and uh, I follow a diet called the MIND diet, which is a variation of the Mediterranean diet that uh, is a little richer in uh, – it was designed to, to uh, have a higher quantity of flavanols. And, and you, you don't ask me too many questions about that because I – it, it's it's new stuff to me, but, the but you're doing it. <laughs> yeah, the the flap the the, flap, the the things that are a little bit different than a Mediterranean diet is a, a bigger emphasis on uh, nuts and berries, and you know it's then the same you know uh, the 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 uh, green vegetables that nobody likes, um, and uh, limit uh, getting rid of the cholesterol and 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 red meats. And in my book, I did go through a chart of the things that are recommended on the mind diet. And it, it actually is, you know, there are have been several studies comparing mind diet with the Mediterranean diet. And the mind diet seems to be a little bit better in um, in s- slowing the progression of Alzheimer's disease with early disease and, and preventing some people uh, from getting it. So uh, for me, it isn't hard to follow uh, at all. And no, the reason it looks for that, delicious. Well, no, and, and but you know it wouldn't have been my choice for a diet twenty years ago, but you know with my loss of smell, which is total now, I've I pretty much lost my sense of taste as well. So uh, actually, some of those bitter things like kale, I I find I like because they've got more flavor to me than most things do. So it gives me a little bit of variety. Whereas I don't think I would have liked kale as much twenty years ago. I think I like it more than my wife does, and she's always been the healthy diet person. And I want to just add one benefit for everybody out there who might be uh, interested in knowing more about the MIND diet, that um, it's recommended a five-ounce glass of red wine every day. Right. Yeah. That's that's a perk, <laughs> at least yep, for me. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like those diets that tell me I can't drink wine. Yeah, exactly. But it limits cheese. You know, the, the, it does. You know? That's hard for me because I and I have to say I cheat a little bit on that because I I do like cheese. It don't it it's uh, the recommendation as I recall is just one serving per week, and that just sounds you know barbaric. Yeah, that but, sounds harsh. Uh, yeah, <laughs> unnecessary yeah, I, roughness. I, I, yeah, yeah, I'm sure people will come up with you know other diets that are modifications that you know may even be better than that. But but the data is you know the data for diet slowing progression of Alzheimer's is not as strong as for exercise. But it's pretty good. You know, it's certainly something to take seriously. Well, I think that the lifestyle interventions are important to take on as soon as you become aware of the fact that you can actually take control of your health through them. That's the time to start them, like not to wait. Yeah, absolutely. And I should mention that, you know, today in today's New York Times, there was an article about the recent research about sleep and Alzheimer's. And that's something that's been known for a while. But the the data actually seems to be pretty good that people who get, I I think it was six hours or less sleep, are more likely to get Alzheimer's by about, you know, not a huge amount, but maybe 20% or 30% than people who get 
I think it was seven hours or more. So you know, one more thing. And there, there's actually some science to support that about why we might do better with more sleep, you know, cleansing the brain of, of amyloid and other toxins. Um, so that's that's a study that's still ongoing. Um, I've heard about that actually yeah. as well, about that yeah. sleep is part of preventative medicine. It is. Uh, and of course, it can be hard in Alzheimer's because Alzheimer's interferes with sleep for a lot of people. Fortunately, I sleep very well and I have no trouble getting seven or eight hours uh, every night. Do you find in, in your research any geographic or demographic data of higher incidences of Alzheimer's, let's say in North America versus Western Europe or Eastern Europe yeah. that is uh, lifestyle and food based? You know, I'm I'm not expert in that, so I, I'm going to be really careful. There okay. are there are uh, certainly racial differences that uh, African people with African ancestry, uh, so people in Africa or or African Americans have a higher uh, instance of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, but I don't think the genetics of that is understood. I don't know that there is a big difference between Europe, but I I I really shouldn't comment on that. It's not something I. I know a lot about. Well, it's, I asked the question because there's in the, let's say the French diet, you know, the staple being wine and cheese and the combination between the two actually being healthy and reducing Mm -hmm. levels of other diseases in that, in, within that culture. I'm wondering, you know, if Alzheimer's is the same, lower, higher, just curious because you mentioned you yeah. love cheese. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, the French are, are not cutting back on their, their red meat and, and you know, cholesterol containing. There's their butter. Ignore their butter. Their butter. Yeah, <laughs> and that's something we're supposed to watch. So, you know, they, they may be good in some parts and not so good in other parts of their diet. We have run out of time. And I want to thank you for coming and sharing this really important work and in sharing a part of your own experience with us, because it's very, very valuable. It takes some of the fear out of the unknown of, you know, when somebody receives a diagnosis like this, the book we've been speaking about is a tattoo on my brain, a neurologist personal battle against Alzheimer's disease. My guest today has been Dr. Daniel Gibbs to learn more about Dan's work and the book, please go to tattoo on my brain. Dot com. Thanks so much for sharing part of your afternoon with me. I really appreciate oh, th- it. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, we're talking about caretaking the brain and minding the odyssey of memory loss. My next guest is Dr. Ann Basting. She's a professor of English at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, where she teaches storytelling and community engagement. Basting has spoken or been featured in the PBS documentary Penelope, the TED Med Stage, and as well as NPR's All Things Considered. The book we are speaking about today is Creative Care, A Revolutionary Approach to Dementia and Elder Care. Welcome, Anne. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks so much. It's great to be here with you. Oh, well, this is, I'm like rolling up my sleeves because I really think there is so much to talk about 
when we speak about our elders and creating a sense of joy and purpose and connection at the end of one's life? I Well, clearly, I couldn't agree more. I think the whole late life has been over-medicalized and shrouded in kind of a, a silence and shame and that we can really open some light, open some windows, bring in some hope, bring in some meaning making and make it, you know, something powerful as a whole last part of our lives. Um, I think we underestimate the growth that is there to be had. I agree. Let, let, let's talk about this for a moment, because in the case of our family elder, Oftentimes, she speaks of feeling as though she's useless, which, of course, she is not. There are a lot of things that she can still do quite well and quite effectively. But that sense of um, grief and loss for the faculties that have been lost and helping support our elders through that. You know, I think we've set up our, our late life care systems <clears throat> on a service model. Almost they know you look at the care communities and they look like hotels where people are there to serve you. And what that does inadvertently is take takes away all of the agency and helpfulness and, and purposefulness of the elder themselves. And I think that that's one of, I call it the tyranny of care, that you're not allowed to give back somehow. And that a lot of this work is about opening up opportunities for older people, even regardless of disability, to give back to their world, to be of use and purpose, to shape and grow things. Yeah, I I hear you. And I find this is one of the challenges because also there is a sense of learned helplessness when family members or caregivers move in to live communally. There is that desire to sort of make things easier. And I'm not so sure that that's a good thing. Well, a lot of the really inventive new designs in in care communities are about are around little household models where instead of the old version, which was based on the hospital, which is the what they call the double loaded corridor, that long kind of faceless hallway, right? It's a little intimidating, uh. um, meant for sort of temporary living, not long term living. If you're going to live somewhere long term, make it a home-like environment. So there's little clusters of rooms around a common living room and a kitchen where people can participate in the shaping of their own day. If they still have the capacity and they want to be of use and helpful for their, their and make friends in their new environment, um, that is really, I think, some of the hope and the promise of these of, of new buildings. And one might I, I might add that is radically different than some of the the difficulty with infection control that we found in long-term care right now. That old hospital model is terrible for this. And the new smaller group homes are much different and much better. Well, in the smaller group home situation, you do have the opportunity for intimacy, you know, for conversation where it's not a way station for death, but a, a a vibrant community. Exactly. And I think that was that was really one of the ideas behind a big project we did that I there's a chapter about in the book called the Penelope Project, where we wanted to see if we could reimagine a huge story, do a huge project that would unite the entire long term care community. So assisted living, skilled care, independent living and the adult day 
we all read Homer's Odyssey, some of us in sort of smaller book version, like the, the crib note version. <laughs> and then we took it apart over two years in a whole series of creative workshops. Um, and we wanted to see, you know, Penelope, Odysseus's wife, is, is seen as waiting for him for 20 years to return. And we saw that as a very empowered rather than a point of weakness. One living, mm. learning to live in quiet and learning to live differently. And if we could reimagine uh, who she was and her strength and power, we could share a story told by the elders themselves that told a different story about living um, the last part of your life. Fascinating. I, I love this idea of the creative process, adding the generative creative process to caregiving. And when we say creative care, you mean creativity in all aspects, right? It's not just the living setup, but it's a it's a way that people engage the um, activities that are presented. Talk a little bit more about that. Well, you know, a really good way to measure how activities are working in care settings is do you, do you want to do them? <laughs> do you want to go play <laughs> balloon toss? Do you want, do, would you do that? Um, or if, you know, that was our goal with the Penelope Project or some of the work that we do is what if programming was so interesting that family members wanted to come and do it with their loved one, that staff didn't want to do it for them, but with them, and that it, it, it helped neighbors and volunteers participate as partners rather than sort of coming in out of pity, but really transforming a medicalized health setting into a cultural setting where meaning and value are, and joy are created and beauty are created every day. Mm. What you say um, makes me think of cooking in our home because our aunt is an incredible cook. I mean, when she was really in her in her heyday, she would cook these most amazing meals and she doesn't have really the stamina to do that anymore. But she loves coming into the kitchen and doing a task like she loves making leeks. And then she will tell a story about leeks when she was a child growing up during the war and how leeks were the poor man's asparagus. And that leads to this creative storytelling process. And that's a very interesting observation I've made in the things that we're doing in our household. Oh, my goodness. Audio record that. OK, <laughs> I will. <laughs> that is such a precious thing that you just described. And it's such a great example of of inviting someone to exercise their strengths that they have in whatever way they can participate. Um, and then, you know, for us, meaningfulness in, in time slips and in creative care has, has four components. It's personal expression. So inviting the story, right, or the expression through cooking, um, any form of, of expression, um, movement, sound, music, words. Uh, drawing, whatever people have, it's pleasurable. So uh, that can be intellectual challenge as well as sort of joy. Um, it has rigor. So you're not pretending to cook. <laughs> you're actually cooking. Yeah. Right. I mean, there is, it has a rigor to it and a practice to it and, and you're taking it seriously. And then the final one is that it's connected to the larger world. So if you audio recorded your aunt reading or saying that story and then shared it with other family members, 
and she knew that it was a gift she was giving to others, that would be incredible, incredibly meaningful. Or to make it part of a whole book of these cooking stories that you do that you can share with others. Oh, what a great idea. I, I love this idea. I mean, this because this is something I know that gives her a great amount of pleasure. And in that space, when she's cooking or in the kitchen, that there is no memory loss, there is no physical incapacitation, there she's just fully present. And it's something that we are co-creating together. So I see how that works. I'll, I'll share another funny example. You know, this, this interview is being recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, and everybody's hair is super long. And so she asked me to cut her <laughs> hair. <laughs> and I said, Okay, I'm going to cut your hair, but I need to watch a YouTube video first. And she said, I completely trust you. And I thought, oh, oh. that is precious. And I did it. Well, I think, you know, yeah. And I think, you know, that's, that's the thing that I'm noticing about this time is that, one, we're aware of elders like we haven't been for a very long time. We've, we've allowed them to kind of be put to the side of society and suddenly we're aware of the desire and the need to connect. But we're also all caregivers in some ways in this moment, whether it's like you for an aunt or for, you know, your family that's trying to survive this. And we're also all incredibly creative. And this is the way we're all shared in it because we've never encountered this before. And creativity comes from finding novel solutions to problems and challenges. So I, I think it's one of the most creative moments I've ever lived through. It's demanding everyone exercise creativity. And for you in that example, I, okay, I've never cut someone's hair. I'm going to watch a video <laughs> and then I'm going to try it. It was you wacky, know, right? Like, you know, okay. Yeah. What's the yeah. worst thing that could happen before we emerge from this quarantine? The hair will have grown out, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's it's everyone's given it a try, which is just fantastic. We're going to take a break. And before we do, I just want to ask you what called you to this work? Because my sense is that there is some moment in time in your own life where the light bulb went on that is relevant to this story. Sure. Well, you know, I started this work in my 20s. So I was I was pretty young, but I, the whole first section of the book really answers this question because it's almost in some ways a conundrum to me too. Um, I, I went back and did a lot of thinking and I go to this moment where normal everyday mean girl junior high, um, I found myself without friends for a good couple of years. And my mother, and I loved the arts. I, was, I loved writing. I loved drawing. And my mother put me in classes, art classes. I was 13. And all the other people were, you know, in their 40s and 50s. And they became my friends. So I've been making art with people much older than myself <laughs> for a very long time. And yeah. I think I just gained a comfort with people older than me and and, you know, people my own age clearly baffled me. I did not, I did not have a great track record. So I think I, I just came to be really comfortable. And then that translated into friendships with my grandmother. Um, and then some encounters when my grandmother was in a nursing home where she had had a stroke and lost the ability to speak. And I found myself 
in the storytelling process with her where she guided me through a story through kind of a, a process of 500 questions. And I realized that everyone has a story they can share, that it's really up to us to figure out how to invite it into being. Oh, beautiful. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Dr. Anne Basting. We're talking about her book, Creative Care, A Revolutionary Approach to Dementia and Elder Care. To learn more about Anne Basting, please visit timeslips.org on Twitter at timeslips-creative-storytelling. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. conversation with Dr. Ann Basting. We're talking about caretaking the brain and minding the odyssey of memory loss. Let's get back to it. And if you were listening to the prior segment, you know that it's resonating with my heart because of the caregiving that I'm doing uh, for an elder family member. But also just the idea, Anne, of, of putting new light on the value of the wisdom generation of these elders. And how do we manage or how could we reframe the way we address dementia with them? Well, you know, I think that the impulse when you encounter, when dementia reveals itself, when you are talking with someone and and they repeat themselves and you suddenly, or, or they don't recognize you, you can kind of feel a flash of heat. Like I've recognized dementia and Oftentimes, we just stop. We don't know what to do. We don't know what to say. We don't know. We're so used to memory and story sharing being the building block of relationships that we don't know what else to do when we when we figure that might that's not a tool we can use anymore. But if this approach encourages people to move around that, to go away from that expectation of memory and fact. And instead, enter the present moment where that person is and invite them into wonderment in the world around them. And that you can connect there by tapping into emotions and senses and imagination where otherwise you might have stopped visiting. And instead, you can share laughter and joy again in a way that you might have thought was really closed off. It's interesting what you share in in my experience of dementia with this particular elder and their fleeting moments of it. She's actually pretty much still got it together. But I find myself asking her a lot of questions that asking questions sort of shakes it up a little bit for her. And while she might not be able to stitch the story together exactly, 
it does activate this sort of wild storyteller in her. You know, that's the key to the approach. Um, you really hit it on the head. One, you know, the, the, if there is an origin story to this approach, it's me walking into, as a volunteer, a locked Alzheimer's unit uh, in my 20s, trying to adapt theater techniques, mostly based on reminiscence, to working with people with Alzheimer's. And week after week, nothing worked. And out of frustration, one day I brought in, I just tore a picture out of a big, bright colored picture out of a magazine. And it happened to be the Marlboro Man, an iconic image of, <laughs> of a cowboy, right? I thought, well, this, this is interesting. And I brought in a sketch pad and I said, you know what? Let's just let go of memory. We don't, frankly, we don't do it so well. <laughs> What? Uh, let's make up a story. Let's just make up a story. What do you want to call him? Anything. And I'll write it down. And someone said Fred. And I wrote down Fred. And then I said, Fred who? Fred Astaire. So we suddenly uh, had a cowboy named Fred Astaire. And where do you want to say he lives? Oklahoma. And then someone starts to sing the refrain from Oklahoma. Mm. And that, it just went like that, open-ended question after open-ended question, inviting response, and then repeating the answers that they'd given to make sure I got them right. So I was learning their language, whatever, whatever they could express. And then always by repeating it, inviting them back into the moment of creation. So it was right there. They could add to it, right? It wasn't like the story got so long and so they got so far away from it, they couldn't add anymore, which is like what life feels like to people with dementia because it moves so fast. They don't know where to enter. They, they think it's already gone by and they can't enter. So always bringing them back to the moment where they can participate and create, all based on those open-ended questions. And when you're bringing that person into the moment, the the positive byproduct is that we become very much in the moment with them. You know, it's so funny. I have so many friends studying meditative practices to, to fully feel the present moment and to be they go on long retreats. I mean, it is a, it's a discipline. And I say, you know what? I, I think that's what I do. I just do it with people with dementia. <laughs> yeah. You are right there in the present fully. You, that is where you are when you're in full relation with someone with dementia. And then when you learn to add positively to say yes and that core of improvisation to that moment, you are also practicing uh, being in the present. And it's so nourishing for both the caregiver and the person they're working with. You know, what you say is really important because anybody listening that is a caregiver knows how exhausting it can be, the physical as well as the emotional demands of meeting the needs of the person you're giving care to, but also of the family and the daily routine and professional life. If you still have a role in professional life, it's a lot. It can be a tremendous amount. And I think there's a chapter where I talk about defining creativity and defining care and what happens when you bring those two terms together. And really what, what I see happening is a radical change of how we've come to see care as depleting and that creativity is generative. 
Yeah. So it, it makes something positive out of the moment. And when you bring them together, it reorients care as reciprocal and generative. And that, I think, just that framework can be helpful to caregivers so that they, they stop seeing what I call the empty vessel model of care, where one vessel is empty and the other is filling it. And then that vessel ends up empty. And that's yeah. caregiver burnout, right? And if we, if we shift that and say this is a reciprocal relationship, it changes the dynamic of care. I hear you. I, I, and this, it's a challenge that I hold on my own, too, because at the end of the day, I go, "Ooh, I'm, I'm tired. You know, I'm not I'm not old myself, but there's a lot of physical work required to this. So the idea of being um, creative and regenerative really strikes a chord. Another little story pops into my mind about a, a YouTube chair video class, a, a yoga, yoga, chair yoga video class, where we had our aunt <laughs> do the class and she goes, well, are you going to do it with me? So there we were, the three of us <laughs> doing, you know, senior chair yoga. And it was a sing-along, right? So it had all these fabulous old songs and she was just having a ball. We were all singing. It was great. I like your aunt enormously. <laughs> I do too. She is something, you know, and everybody should be so lucky to be surrounded by an elder that has sort of a full, robust life, you know, that a lot, these lives have not always been easy lives, but they have so much to teach us. Well, and I also think, you know, I, I lean on Arthur Kleinman, who has wrote a book recently called The Soul of Care, that he really sees uh, care as the highest developmental goal for human beings of learning how to give it and how to receive it. And that that is one, it doesn't appear really on Erickson's charts, but it is, I think, the last great challenge that we can have in our lives is not only learning the grace of giving care of how to do it, but also of how to model what it means to be a, 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 a dignified recipient of care and how mm. to teach other people to do that. Um, and I, I write about that in that chapter on creativity and care as well, partially because I'm watching my mother with uh, in her journey in Alzheimer's now, and she's really teaching me that, something that I haven't seen in my 30 years of, of being in this work in this field. I hadn't thought of that before. And this moment when I saw her reach over for my father's hands and say, have I told you how much I value your care? And he just welled up and said, yes, you do every day. She didn't remember doing it. <laughs> she felt it and was telling him. And it just felt like, wow, that makes caregiving so different as an experience. And to, to have that model, to, you know, she was a teacher and I feel like she's still teaching how to be a recipient of care on this journey into Alzheimer's. Oh, my God. I'm welled up as you're telling that story. That is that is what a beautiful moment. Yeah, I'm really lucky. Wow. Oh, my goodness. We are out of time, but I encourage our listeners to get a hold of the book, Creative Care, A Revolutionary Approach to Dementia and Elder Care authored by my guest today, Dr. Ann Basting. And this is such deep, 
exquisite work. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your your passion with us on the show. And I'm 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 a little teary-eyed over here. <laughs> thank you for sharing your story of your aunt uh, and and good luck on your caregiving journey and thank it was a treat to be here. Yeah, I feel the same. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests, Dr. Dan Gibbs and Dr. Ann Basting, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day and be kind to each other. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere. From the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio. KBUU-RadioMalibu.net and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.